seminary, um, I would con have considered myself hyper-canonical in the sense that I didn't think, you know, it was worth it studying uh, early Jewish writings or even ancient Near East in terms of the background for the Old Testament. And as I continued to do my research, <clears throat> I began to realize theologically uh, something Cornelius Van Til said. He was an apologist taught in the early days of Westminster. And uh, basically he was focusing on 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where we bring all things subject, uh, making them captive to Christ, to the thinking of Christ. So I thought, is this perhaps too narrow of a view to uh, not look at the actual historical background in which the Bible arose? Can that be helpful? Now, there are some people who may find things in Judaism that are not in the Bible, and they see those as the key to the interpretation. Where'd the guy go? There you are. Keys to the interpretation of the text they're studying. I think that's wrong. I think that basically early Judaism, which is mainly what I'm dealing with in this book, not the ancient Near East, but early Judaism, um, are like commentaries in the present. We just saw Logos presenting all these commentaries. Now, I'm sure all of us have read a commentary. And uh, we've had an aha moment. Say, oh my gosh, I can't. I'd never seen that. And uh, we realize that, that's that this person, maybe it's Tom Schreiner, uh, whoever it may be, this, this person's not inerrant. They're not writing scripture. They're writing a commentary hundreds of years later. But they're saying something that helps us uncover the meaning in the text itself. And so um, I think that sometimes, hey, wouldn't it be nice to push our commentaries back from the 21st century to the 1st century A.D., even to the 3rd century B.C.? And that's what these writings do. And now sometimes they're off the wall, just like commentators today are off the wall. I hope I'm not one of those, but some think I am. And uh, so, um, but sometimes they have really good things to say. In other words, they're, they're, they're interpretations that give insight into the text. But if they're really giving insight into the text, you'll be able to see it in the text, just as with a modern commentary. So I'll often, in the small print in my commentary, talk about Jewish interpretations that supplement what I've already found in the text and, 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 and show some insight uh, that helps us better understand the text. But I would never uh, 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 try to validate an interpretation in a biblical text uh, based solely on an idea I got outside of it. So it's just commentary materials, not on the same level as the Bible. I hope that helps a little, but if you want to press, that's a very important idea. Now, I'll be honest with you that uh, you said it doesn't occur at Westminster. Well, actually, at Westminster, we've gone through some theological uh, diversity in the past few years, especially in our Old Testament department, and they uh, uh, really did believe that in the ancient Near East, that was the key to interpreting uh, Genesis 1 to 3, for example. And I think one has to be very careful about that. Um, uh, Ancient Near Eastern literature can be helpful, but it can only illuminate something you, you it's already in the text itself. That, that uh, uh, As I was explaining with commentators, you, you, you kind of have an aha moment. You see that, well, that's not their idea I'm importing into the text. You can now see, oh my gosh, when I use those lenses, I see that's what the text is really saying. I don't know, does that, is that helpful a little bit?
Okay. So I'm not saying it's authoritative, um, just like other commentaries. Um, <clears throat> I missed that original question, but sounds like mine might be similar. On this whole topic of the use of the Old Testament and the New, um, have you all found any examples where New Testament authors simply pick up and employ maybe just Jewish tradition, not something specifically in the Old Testament? Maybe one example that I've seen uh, in print, uh, say this tradition of the angels giving the law, right? Galatians 3, Hebrews 2. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that's not in the Old Testament, but I want to hear your views mm. on, on mm. something like that. You don't even have to use that example. But is mm. that, is that mm. kind of clear? You want me to go? Or you you go, go first. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I do think, you know, Galatians uh, says that. And, uh, I, and, and Scott, you'll find scholars saying that Paul is dependent on Jewish tradition, but I think it does arise out of Deuteronomy um, uh, chapter 33, for example, uh, where it's talking about Sinai. The Lord came from Sinai, 33:2, and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the midst of ten thousand holy ones. His right hand was there. Uh, right hand, um, his right hand was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All thy holy ones are in thy hands. They followed in his steps. Moses charged us with um, with a law. And um, uh, verse 2 um, says, as he came from Sinai, he came uh, uh, in, in the midst of myriads of, uh, of holy ones. So the, the angels are right there as he is, uh, as he is giving... The, the law. And in fact, when it says at his right hand there was flashing lightning for them, um, well, uh, one way to render that is there was a fiery law. So right after it says he's coming from Sinai with these ten thousands of holy ones, his angels, immediately it talks about the law. I don't think it's a far jump for, for Paul to say that uh, in one way or another uh, the, the angels. Um, are, are connected in some way with the giving of the law. Now, that has to be fleshed out a little more, but I think there's a biblical root here. I think it's very important to see that that there may be organic seeds in the Old Testament that uh, are then developed by later Old Testament material and then become even clearer in the New Testament. So I think there's an organic seed there from which Paul is uh, is developing. Yeah, I like the word seed. So jubilees would kind of pick up that. And, and, yeah, and Judaism and then, then, yeah. then, then expands that. Yeah, that's good. And then Paul may see Judaism as a good commentary at that point, but only a commentary of what right. he believes is actually in the Is already in Deuteronomy 33. Right. Thank you very much. That's, that's very clear. Do you have another, any other examples of that sort of thing? Uh, I, you, Tom? Where I am currently, there may be seeds of it there, and I don't think there are many examples of it, but the, the specificity of angels being the mediators of the law, that, it's not clear to me. I mean, Deuteronomy 33.2, I know that's often cited. At least that's just not very clear to me. So, you know, I, I'm just happy to say on some occasions, and, and honestly, that's where I am on this text right now, I don't really know. I don't really know. I, I mean, ultimately, I trust the New Testament revelation, but I don't. I don't think 
I don't think I have to have necessarily a clear Old Testament text. I think some things aren't as clear as others. It, it could be there, but that's that's just not as clear to me. So, Thank you both for coming. We appreciate this. Um, a question on Revelation. So, And this is for either one of you. So I agree that the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls are uh, recapitulation, parallel in some way. And uh, but yet there seems to be there seems to be some distinction between them as well. In as much as the seals speak about a fourth of the earth being affected, and the trumpets a third of the earth, and the bowls the entire earth. So I'm just wondering what function is that uh, literary progression of a quarter of the earth, a third of the earth, and then the entire earth being affected. What's the function of what uh, of the of the literary technique going on? Well, I'm going to say something first, and then, well, Greg, correct me if necessary. I uh, I really struggled. I wrote a short little commentary recently on Revelation, and I struggle, especially with Revelation eight and nine. But when I came to Revelation sixteen, which are the bold judgments, I think the judgments described there are so comprehensive and so massive that I think they are all descriptions in pictorial language of the final judgment. Uh, not everyone agrees with that, but I, it's hard for me to conceive of how those are judgments throughout history, given how uh, comprehensive they are. So I think they're all just p pictures of the final judgment. I'm not, I'd love to hear Greg, I'm not quite as sure what I do with a fourth to a third. Where where I came down is I, I essentially said, yes, they are also depictions, the the, uh, the trumpets, right? They are depictions of judgments all through history. So very close to the seals. But why it goes from a fourth to a third, I'm not sure. So let's let's hear the, the man on Revelation, you know? No. You're you're a man of revelation too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have to ask: Is this a progression chronologically, fourth, third, and where it tends to talk of holes? Though not all of the bowls talk of holes. Um, uh, and remember, each of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Um, usually the sixth and seventh do talk about final judgment. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the first five. So are the first five in the bowls, for example? Um, it, 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 I think it's viable, probably, perhaps, to take those in a chronological progressive way. But just as well, um, G.B. Caird gives a good example in his commentary in Revelation that, that, that you're... Um, these recapitulating series of seven, sometimes it's like you're in an art gallery and you're looking at a close-up, come back a little, little bit more and you get a little wider view, come back a little more and you get a little wider view. And so my contention would be that um, at times uh, these, these plagues affect a fourth of the earth. At the same time, these same plagues affect uh, a third of the earth. And at other times, they, they, can, they can be uh, uh, worldwide. Uh, and yet not be the final consummation. Um, and if you look at those first five, not all of them speak of a whole. A couple, I'd have to look at the text again. A couple, maybe. Um, and, and by the way, uh, 
the um, uh, bowls and the trumpets are both based in the same order on the Exodus plagues. To me, that cries out for more similarity than less. It, uh, I have a good friend, Gordon Hugenberger, who used to teach Old Testament, Gordon Conwell, he's now pastor of Park Street Church, he's a very fine scholar pastor, he takes the approach I take on Revelation, but he agrees with Tom that, that this last um, uh, series of bowls, and we're really speaking of the first five now, are, are all final judgment. Uh, if that were the case, and if I came to, uh, if I became persuaded of that, it wouldn't change my view of Revelation that much. Um, but I, I'm, I'm convinced that you have to ask yourself. See, the default setting is always when you see a progression. It's chronological. That's the first thing we jump to. And uh, I think that it may be progressive in terms of getting a wider and wider picture of the same plagues. So that, that's my position at this point. But it's certainly it's a very tough passage. Um, Thank you very much. A follow-up I'd like to ask is, so when it comes to a fourth and a third, Greg, uh, uh, clearly those fractions are symbolic, but you're saying there's some significance to it that of effect, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. There's because uh, they're same. very close to each other in terms yeah. of numbers, you yeah. know. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, thank you. I had a quick question for you. <clears throat> I've got three little boys, uh, so one's nine, one's seven, one's four, and I'm constantly trying to give them a vision of what heaven's like. And I'm just curious if if you had one of my sons come up to you and say, "What's heaven like?" How would you? What kind of pictures would you give them, uh, just to sort of get them to to really look forward to that? I, mean, I know there are other things that they need, but but what would be some images just that you would give them? Well, my first response would be is to try to ask them as simply as I could. Are you talking about what happens when we die before Jesus comes back? Or are you talking about what happens when Jesus comes back? And I would say when Jesus, if it's if, if they're concerned about what goes on for eternity, the eternal heaven, I'd say it's a new heavens and earth. You're going to be on it. Maybe you'll be a farmer, whatever. But it's a very physical new heavens and earth. We'll have physical resurrection bodies. Now, if they're concerned about, you know, if they had a friend, a relative who died, and where is that relative right now? I'd say, well, let's go to Revelation chapter six. We see that people who died in the Lord are with the Lord now. You can speak with the Lord. And uh, there is a, a conscious uh, notion of an intermediate state. But that is an intermediate temporary state. It will ultimately come while their spirits are raised now and they're with the Lord in heaven, perfected uh, uh, morally, they'll be perfected bodily in the new heavens and the new earth. I, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna tell a story with my daughter. I think you'll understand how it responds to your question. But she said to me when, I don't know how old she was, five or something, our dog was named Scamper. And she said, Dad, I really want Scamper to be in heaven. She goes, is Scamper going into heaven? <clears throat> and I said, Anna, do you really need Scamper with you in heaven to be happy? And she said, I do. I do. And I said, then he'll be there. 
I, I was dead serious. I think for her mind at that time, I think that was the right answer. So, so every, everything, everything beautiful and wonderful in this world will be there and more in the new creation. So, yeah. Now, I also have a biblical theology of dogs. <laughs> Beware of the dogs? No, no. No, no. I had a beautiful golden retriever yeah, named yeah. Tommy. Amazing. Yeah. Had an immune system problem. Died at the age of two after we'd gone through puppyhood. And, uh, and he died. We loved Tommy. So it really it does make you think. And so the question is, you know, we know from chapter 11 and 65, there are going to be animals in the new heavens and earth. So then the, the big question is, how are they going to get there? Now, we know that the new heavens and earth is created. And by the way, I'll probably be discredited. Uh, uh, everything I've said will be discredited from this explanation of the biblical theology of dogs, but that's all right. Um, uh, so it, it may be, we, we know that the new heavens and earth will be created out of the destructive matter of the first heavens and earth. So the animals, where do they come from? Now, maybe they come from the chaos of boats or the chaos of mountains. And they're just created, you know, there's no connection between dogs and the dogs of the older. No connection of dogs in the new earth with dogs of the old because they're created out of uh, dust. God can do that, you know, out of, out of mountains or whatever. Or a second option here is the dogs in the new heavens and earth are created from the dust of old dogs that died. All right. But it's just a species. Okay, it's not like Tommy uh, is going to be raised, all right, from, from his own ashes. All right, so it's just a species. But the third view is that it is a specific one-to-one -one correspondence. It may be. And uh, we know that Romans 8, passage that you have written on, says that the creation groans until it will be set free from its uh, captivity to corruption. It'll be set free. And so... Um, you know, how do you flesh that out? Uh, I don't think it's inconsistent to flesh that out with a personal identification resurrection. They don't have souls. But, well, you know, dogs have personalities. That's another question. They, they're not in the image of God. They're not in the image of God. But they, yeah, they have personalities. You know, it depends on how you define a soul. But nevertheless, uh, for myself, I think it's possible that I will see Tommy in the new heavens and earth. I can't be dogmatic. It's one of the. <laughs> it's one of the three options, and I think that would comfort your daughter. Yeah. Yes. I'll, we'll have to send this video to her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know at least one other pastor is planning a series on Revelation, and I was wondering if you give give two or three. Uh, tips for preachers for uh, planning a series, both in, you know, how big of chunks do you preach in and uh, what are your overall goals in preaching the book? How how deep in the pulpit do you get into all the details, that type of thing? I don't, I don't think there's one right answer to that. I think there are times, it, it depends on where you are in your ministry, where the church is. I think there are times to preach Revelation where... You, Honestly, I think you could do one sermon on the whole book. I think you could do a series where you do five sermons. I think you could do a series where you do 20 sermons, or you, you could go in more depth. So I, I don't think we ought to conclude when it comes to preaching. There, there's one formula. There's one pattern. Um, 
It, it, it depends. That's why it takes wisdom. I think pastors ought to pray and, and seek the Lord and, and know their congregation and where they are and what's happening in the church and in the culture. And, and, then, and then, of course, you know, obviously get good resources to study. Uh, study the biblical text, but there are many good commentaries, Dr. Beals, but others as well. So, yeah. We mentioned my commentary. I do have a new commentary out that uh, reduces it from like around 1,200 down to 500, a little over 500 pages. So um, that may not, uh, that might be a little more gulpable uh, at that point. But uh, my only response would, would, would be that um, if we're talking about the, uh, wanting to do a series. If the pastor is, has been preaching, let's say they just finished Judges, then they go to the New Testament, uh, and they're going to do a New Testament book. And then I'll go back to the Old, and then back to the New. That's my advice if you're going to do series, not preach topically. Because you know when you preach topically, what can tend to happen is you are choosing the topic because you think that that, pro you know your congregation, that's, that's good pastorally, of course, but you, you, you think that this is going to be, this is going to meet their need. At least that's what some think when they preach topically. And, and I think preaching in an expository way through books, whatever, however large or small the chunks, you're letting the Word of God be conveyed to people and it will meet their needs. Now, of course, you're always going to choose some practical applications uh, that, that you hope will, will be relevant in, in the course of that sermon. And having said all of that, so if it's if the, if the pastor's doing a series, and I hope they are, preaching through books, because I think that God's people need to hear God's word and the way it was presented to the original hearers. They, they need to see, uh, yes, it's read. We, we know that some of the letter carriers probably added some comments as well. And Ezra's a model. They read the scriptures uh, back then, uh, even at a podium. Um, and so I, I, I would say, um, uh, you know, uh, Try to divide the book up as best you can. Um, uh, for myself, I would say when you're in the visions, do uh, it, it will be hard for me to do this, but I think uh, I would try it. Try to do one chapter a sermon, if not at least half a chapter a sermon. Now, the letters are a little more difficult. I think you could choose about three of the churches out of the seven and, and, and use those and, and kind of do cross-references to the others when you're doing the letters. One reason I say that is when people preach Revelation, it gets dominated by the letter because it's so much easier. You know, they look at the visions and just like looking at your cross references in your Bible, you just look away from it. It's too small. There's so many of them. You just you don't want to look at it. And so you don't, some don't want to ironically look at the visions they were intended to see. So and, and I preached through Revelation, and I did do a sermon on each of the churches, but. I, I can't remember all the details, but I, chapter four I did as a separate one. You know, some of the chapters are quite short, really. Five, um, I think I did six separately, seven, but eight and nine I did together. And uh, ten and eleven is separate. But, you know, you're, it's actually, you're going pretty fast if you're doing a chapter. You know, there's 22 chapters, and it doesn't really take terribly long if you follow that approach. Even if you do the seven churches, it I think I, I think I didn't have more than 20 to 25 sermons somewhere in there. So, uh, my question is more of a, a hermeneutical question, um, Doctor Beal. You mentioned in your first lecture that um, from one one say mino, our approach should be to assume the figurative symbolic approach unless we're forced to take it literally. 
Um, what are some things in Revelation where you're forced to take it literally, and and why do you feel you're forced to go that direction? That's a very hard question because you know I, I would have to go to each particular passage and, and demonstrate uh, interpretively, exegetically, why <laughs> take something figurative or something literal. It's possible, for example, in um, uh, I'll take Tom's, uh, pa- Tom Schreiner's uh, passage in, in the uh, sixth seal. Uh, he's convinced that that's about the end of the world, but you lean toward it being figurative. Mm-hmm. I tend to agree with you. It's possible that could merge into literal, though, because what you're saying is figurative for a literal destruction. Mm-hmm. Really what he's saying. And so that, that, that comes close. Mm-hmm. Now, take the passage today that we looked at in Revelation 11 where um, it says that the two witnesses um, heard a voice from heaven and uh, said, come up here. They went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies beheld them. Um, well, Jesus also in Acts 1, you know, he, he goes up in the cloud. They're following the pattern of Jesus here, and that's part of his resurrection. Um, it could be that this is merging now. Their vindication is explained in, in literal terms. If not... I would take the same approach, and I, I kind of 51% prefer this approach, that it's figurative for a literal resurrection. But it comes out of Ezekiel. Um, the, um, uh, the phrase about um, them, them going up, after uh, it says they stood on their feet, and people were beholding them, and uh, the breath of life, from God came into them. That's right out of Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Now, do we take, so what we have to do then is go back, do we take that literally or do we take it figuratively? That's a hard question. Most Old Testament scholars take the Valley of Dry Bones and the regathering of the bones with the flesh as figurative for Israel's restoration. However, it is definitely developing chapter 37, which says, I'll put a spirit in them, a new spirit in them. And that's regeneration. I think that uh, chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, is talking about Israel's spiritual regeneration when they are restored. But then you have to ask, what is regeneration? It's recreation. It's resurrection. I think it's talking about resurrection of the Spirit. And I think if you would have asked Ezekiel, well, Ezekiel, you're stressing resurrection of the Spirit. Would, would that include in your peripheral vision physical resurrection at the end of the age? I think he would say yes. So... This is what is entailed in trying to figure out, is the resurrection in chapter 11 figurative or is it literal? Perhaps on the basis of the Old Testament context, I might lean toward it being um, an actual resurrection, but if it's figurative, it's figurative of an actual resurrection. So it's a fine line between the two. Those would be two examples, and we could go on and on, but I think that, of course, I mean, you know, when... uh, uh, it says, John, I want you to see this in the vision. So I take that very literally, for example. But that's pretty obvious. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. Sometimes it's not. Thank you guys for coming out. Um, so my question is about Revelations 20. Um, I'm having a problem understanding. Um, I think it was brought up yesterday that those who were resurrected were those who had been born again, that that was the connection. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if, when I'm reading the text, I seem to understand that these are people who 
yes, they were they were born again, but these are people who um, they they had died in the Lord, and like Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, that He is the resurrection and the life, and though He die, <laughs> though they die, yet will they live. And so my question is, you know, are they? Are they just? Is it that they're born again that they're they're part of the resurrection, or is it because they died and they are Christian? It, does that make sense? No. Can you rephrase it? Um. You ask why are they resurrected, or? I guess the question. Okay. It says, "Blessed, blessed, and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power." Mm-hmm. So are all Christians part of that? Yes. Or is that – so that's my question. And I, 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 Is that right to say that? Is that a jump? Or is it that those they are Christian and they died in the Lord? These are those who were died and were raised as, you know, Paul has this understanding that to die is to be with the, with Christ. So I don't know. Is, is it wrong to think in that direction or is it – how do you jump to this is all Christians? Well, um, go ahead. Tom, you want to go first? It's fine. Well, I'm not there yet. I'm still okay. looking at my device. Okay. Yeah, that's why I carry my actual hard copy Bible. <laughs> so what happens to me is what happened with my clicker this morning on those slides. But at any rate, it, it happens every time I use that clicker anywhere I go. The clicker's demonic. But at any rate. Um, in the text, these these are people who have persecuted, been persecuted and died in the Lord, though I think it includes anyone, ultimately, who has died, whether through overt persecution or ultimately as a result of the fall and through the work of invisible powers of evil. They've died during the church age. Okay, So I think it does include resurrection of all, all people who've died during the church age. Now, while I do take it that they are regenerate, I don't think that this resurrection is about their regenerate state. I think it's about those on earth who are regenerate, who died while regenerate, and their death, ironically, is victory. It leads to an escalated resurrection where they're with the Lord in heaven. So their enemies can't defeat them. They put them to death. They just bounce up even higher into a a larger state of regeneration, if you will, spiritually. So um, well, that, that would be, I think, my response. Um, and, and I just want to add, I think, if I'm understanding your question, I think in verse 4, it speaks of those who were martyred, but he, but he goes on and adds, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who, who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. I think that's all believers. So I don't, I don't think what maybe I don't understand you, but some people say he's only speaking of those who are specifically martyred in verse four. But I think that next clause shows us yeah. that it's speaking of all believers because what he says in the verse I just read, no believer worships the beast or accepts uh, the mark. I don't take that it's literal on their forehead or hand. Of course, you have to understand that we see the beast as extending throughout the church age. This is not just some future time. So this is, you know, it's people that don't, it's believers who don't compromise during their life. And I think Tom's exactly right. That second phrase in verse four extends it. It, it generalizes, it makes the, uh, it makes it a wider scope. 
than just martyrs. No, no believer is an idolater, fundamentally, right? So he's speaking of all believers. Now, I don't know if I, that was your question or not. It was. Okay. I mean, I was trying to understand how is it yeah. everyone, how does every Christian participate in the resurrection at this time? Yeah. You know, I think that was the struggle. So thank you, guys. Yeah. Um, so the first verse in Revelation mentions things that must shortly come to pass. Um, and then the next to the last verse um, uh, talks about Christ coming soon. And those two verses seem to establish uh, bookends of immediacy or urgency. And so I'm just wondering um, how you guys interpret interpret those. Why do you always yield to me on the hard ones? <laughs> well, I thought that was an easy one, actually. <laughs> now I'm really on the spot. All right. Um, there are two ways that you can take uh, quickly there. Um, in, in, in one one, the things which must shortly, um, which must shortly take place, um, uh, and you can that, that literally is can be understood as quickly, as well as in the end of the book. So you you could understand that that when fulfillment comes, um, it will come speedily. Okay? may not be talking about the nearness. Um, if it is talking, it could, on the other hand, um, another option is that it is talking about nearness and that Christ's coming is always imminent for the church in any particular generation. But the third view this is the one I take. And that phrase comes out of Daniel. What must come to pass in the latter days? It's the same Greek word, hadeganestai, what must come to pass. And in Daniel, it's in Tysesketaisemeris, in the latter days. And uh, John has changed it from um, the things which must quickly take place. I think he sees what, what Daniel said, what must take place in the latter days, is near. It's just about to take place. And in fact, I think it includes the idea it's just begun to take place. It's not just around the corner. Yeah, it is. There's a lot around the corner. Uh, but it's begun. And why would I say that? Well, because of the contrast. What must take place in the latter days from Daniel? John changes it. What must take place quickly? But also... Um, the end of verse 3. Heed the things which are in it, written in it, for the time is near. Now that word for near in its verbal and noun form in the Gospels, for example, Mark 1.15, I believe, and other, other texts, uh, it's referred to uh, the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus says the kingdom of God is drawn near. He doesn't mean that it's around the corner but not here yet. It's just beginning. And there's more to come. Um, so uh, I, I think the idea is we get a further explication by the drawing near nearness. In fact, the modern Greek word today, of course we don't do our word studies this way, but Chris Garagunas is a, a Greek and he thinks this is a legitimate connection. Uh, near, uh, the word near today, uh, or to be near, is to touch. Just begin to touch. So let's say a 
know, the Chinese or the Russians, traditional enemies, I suppose, of America. Let's say the Chinese were invading and they were invading, right? They were just stepping on the beaches uh, of uh, California. And uh, a commentator uh, who was aware of what was happening in New England would say, the Chinese are near to all Americans, even those living in, um, in California. Uh, what it would mean is the attack has commenced, but there's a lot more around the corner. So that, that's what I, I take it. Who was asking? Okay. But that, I don't know, Tom, you want to add to that? Or, or disagree with it? Let's see. If, Tom, do you have anything significant to add to that? We're, we're out of time, but there are two more questions. So I didn't know if you you can ask answer this if you think it's important, or if you think we move on to the last two. I, I, I think we can move on. We'll be done. That's fine. Because I want to I want to aim this one at you. That's coming. Um, okay. So you wanna, <laughs> okay. Sure. Yes, Dr. Schreiner. Um, question regarding Revelation seven. You equated the hundred forty four thousand to the great multitude, and I was wondering how do you explain that the hundred forty four thousand is talked about as all the tribes of Israel. Whereas the great multitude has talked about people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. How do you explain that? Well, I tried to explain it in my sermon. I guess I didn't do a very good job. <laughs> I might have missed it. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 think there, I think in the first eight verses, or I guess it's verses four through eight, uh, John is emphasizing that the church of Jesus Christ is the true Israel. They're, they're the fulfillment of God's promises made to his people. So, so the emphasis is the fulfillment of the scriptures. All nations will be blessed in Abraham. Everyone who's a believer, Galatians 3, uh, is, is a child of Abraham. So I, th I think it's significant. I'm just going to Paul here, but Galatians 6.16. The, the church of Jesus Christ is the true Israel of God. I think that's John's way of saying that. Whereas the uncountable multitude, that's another, another picture, but of the same reality. In other words, there's a picture of the universality of the blessing, right? I, I think the 144,000 is saying that as well, since I think that's an uncountable multitude. So that's why I was saying in chapter 5, Jesus is portrayed as a lion, but also as a lamb. Well, if someone were to say to me, how could he possibly be a lion since you said he's a lamb? Well, both, both pictures represent a reality. Both pictures represent a truth there. They're complementary. And I think the same is true in chapter 7. The church, the church is the new and true Israel, but it's also an uncountable multitude. Those aren't contradictory to one another. Well, they're not only not contradictory, but in fact, you, you alluded very briefly, very briefly to the uncountable multitude this morning. If I heard correctly, to the to, to the promise to Abraham? Did you do that? I can't remember. Maybe I can't remember myself. Maybe yes, you, I did. Yes, I did. It's yeah. very brief. Yeah. It was yeah. very, it was, it was yeah. said relates to that. Right, right. And um, in, in fact, that language, I think it's an illusion. That language, which says which no one could count, is from a couple of those promises to Abraham, mm -hmm. where that mm -hmm. very same language is used. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's the seed of Ab it's the F it's the seed of Abraham. It's not the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. It's the seed of Abraham. And here, what we have are the uncountable Gentiles, included with Jews, uncountable Gentiles who are fulfilling the Abrahamic promise 
to Israel. And that's why going to Galatians 16 and the seed of Abraham is perfect. Because we got a seed of Abraham illusion here. So I think you're, I think you're exactly right on. Thank you. Um, so this question is for both of you, but Dr. Schreiner, you said last night um, that we need to preach the final judgment in spite of the criticism we may receive. And so my question is, um, what is a wise but truthful and gracious way to communicate this with some of my non-Christian friends? Because um, certainly it's a difficult topic and it just might be hard to introduce uh, when speaking with them. So just what's a, what's a wise way to talk about that with them? Well, it's, it's hard to describe, isn't it, how conversations occur. But if, if you have friends that you talk with, part of, part of what it means to be a friend is to communicate truth to them in a way that isn't... So I think the, the issue is, yeah, it takes a boldness to, to proclaim the gospel to people. It takes boldness. It takes courage, doesn't it? But then there's a way to talk about it. And I, I think the danger is if it seems as if when you're talking about it, you're angry with them. So if they sense that, you, you bring it up because you're frustrated in the argument or, or discussion, whatever it is. But if you're simply telling them, this is what I believe, then they may be offended. I mean, I remember a conversation with a friend, and we were talking about Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, and that person said to me, "There, if if they're serving well, following the Lord, they'll they'll go to heaven." And I said, "Well, no, Scripture doesn't say that." Uh, scripture says uh, there's only one way. And of course, I gave, I, I said some things about Scripture. And uh, she was totally offended by what I said. I mean, she, she kept saying to me, you are so narrow-minded. But, but I didn't say it in an angry way. So we, we can't anticipate the response. But I said it, I just said it as I'd say anything else in my tone. So... Uh, obviously, it's hard to anticipate any con uh, a particular conversation, but I think mainly for most of us, including me, it's the boldness to say it, just having the courage to say it. And I think that's really important because too often in evangelicalism, what we sort of preach is, you know, it'd be really great to have Jesus as your Savior. It'll really enrich your life. You'll really have a nice life on earth. It'll be much more fulfilling and satisfying. But there's there's no talk of judgment. It's just like life on earth. It, it's going to be really good, and which isn't always true, right? Even externally, at least. So I th I think a big piece of the picture is missing, and uh, and what what do we see in the Western world now? That's just so typically absolutely rejected that there's going to be a judgment. So I think it's so crucial that we not in teaching and preaching situations bring it up often. I mean, it's often talked about in Scripture. And that we have the courage when we're talking to our friends to say it, but with the right tone.